Cool. Well, we have been in a series in the Bible over the past few weeks. This is week seven now this morning. And the series is called Jesus Con or King. And we're looking at this question essentially of who is Jesus? Can we, can we trust what the Bible says about him? Was he who he said he was? Was he this promised Messiah, essentially this promised king? Or was he a con man? Was he somebody who came along and somehow did loads of tricks, maybe had a few good things to say, but he wasn't actually who he said he was? Or did his early followers make him up to be a legend, really? Maybe he was just, you know, a good man with a few good things to say, but then those early followers of Jesus kind of put the spin on it, and it's become known as what we know today. Which one is it? And to help us answer this question, what we're doing is we're going through Mark's gospel and just looking at the life of Jesus and saying, okay, are these things that would be consistent with the behavior of a good king? Or would these be things that would be more consistent with the behavior of a con man or or somebody that was just out to manipulate people? Uh, If you've uh, not been with us for the series so far, you can catch up on the talks on our website, which is up and running now as well. Uh, GraceCity.ca. We've got all of the talks recorded so far in the series. And uh, this morning's will be up there as well in a few days' time. But this morning we are in Mark chapter 1. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to that. If you don't have one here with you this morning, uh, don't worry. The words will come up on the screen here behind me. We're going through a bigger chunk this morning. There have been some other mornings where we've done one or two verses. And I know you've been sitting there thinking, how long are we going to be in this series? This morning we're doing quite a few uh, more verses. So I'm going to start in Mark 1 verse 29. And I will read to the end of verse 34. And it says this, And immediately he, being Jesus, left the synagogue. Sorry, I have picked the wrong part. We're going to start at verse 21, and we're going to go to the end of 34. Sorry about that. Verse 21. Let's try this again. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread around uh, everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. And that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is a difficult text, difficult subject matter, so I'm going to pray again, if that's okay. (laughs) Gracious Father, thank you that you have not left us on our own this morning, that the Holy Spirit of God is here with us. And Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would uh, be with me, be be on me, uh, to navigate this text well. God, thank you that you are the God of revelation, that you are the speaking God, that you have revealed things about yourself to us through Scripture. And uh, God, I pray that you would help me 
again as, as we go through this, that I would be faithful to Scripture and that much would be made of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, this past uh, Tuesday was the, uh, Wednesday actually, I think, was the one-year anniversary of Natalia and I being in Ottawa. We moved on November 10th uh, last year, and uh, the year has blown by. I'm glad to hear a few of you going, yay, but only a few of you. More of you should be excited about this. Uh, well, thanks, Scott. That's very good. We'll work on that. Um, but the year has absolutely blown by. But the city that we moved from in the United Kingdom uh, is a city called Brighton. It's about an hour south of London. I don't know how many of you have been able to visit Brighton, but let me tell you, it is an extremely spiritual city. Uh, everybody in this, that city is into some sort of uh, spirituality or spiritualism or, or has their belief in some form of God or some type of faith. In fact, in Brighton, if you are in Brighton and you are not not spiritual in some way, you're actually seen as being outside of the norm. I really mean that. If you're not spiritual in some way, you're seen as being outside of the norm. So for us, as we were getting to know our neighbors and other people in the city, when when we would tell them that we were Christian, in some ways, what that would be often met with was just like, oh, well, that's cool. I'm spiritual as well. I'm spiritual as well. Everybody in Brighton was very spiritual. Now, interestingly, having moved to Ottawa, it's a very different city uh, than Brighton. But even here in Ottawa, Ottawa, in Ottawa, a lot of people would say that they are spiritual. A huge number of people in our city would say that they are spiritual. If we were just to kind of go into uh, statistics around it uh, from one of the more recent census um, kind of findings that, that, that came out, 65% of our city uh, claimed to be Christian. 65%. That's obviously a huge, huge number. Nearly 7% of our city is Muslim. Those who are Hindu, Buddhist, and Jewish all each would be 1% each. And then there'd be about 22% of people that would not associate themselves with any major world faith. But even of that 22%, many of those would still say that they are spiritual. They just kind of wouldn't pin it to any particular uh, label or faith group. So we still exist in a very spiritual city. And what I want to do this morning as we're going through these verses, fairly challenging verses, in fact, in Mark's Gospel, I want to push us on our spirituality. I want to test us a bit on our spirituality. And here's what I mean. Many of you in this room, Christian or not, would probably happily say that you are spiritual. But I want to see if there's some sort of diving out point that we might hit, even this morning, where we go, oh yeah, the fluffy side of spirituality, you know, the side which means I get to go on Facebook and say things like sending positive thoughts your way and sending prayers your way and all of that. I'm cool with all of that. But some of the things that we're talking about in the Bible this morning, no, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm out. I, I'm out. That's a little bit too far for me. Because what the Bible's talking to us about this morning is something that is going to push us in our spirituality. It's going to force us to make a decision. Do we believe what the Bible is saying about this level of spirituality and this level of spiritual activity? Activity in an unseen realm. Now let me start by saying this, we as a church are a church that believe that this book means life for us, that the Bible means life, and that this is God's written word to us. We are a church that we, uh, we are striving to be built on the foundations of Scripture. Okay? That everything that we do as a church, we're bouncing it off of this. What does the Bible have to say about this? 
What did Jesus say about this? Are these just kind of our own clever ideas? If they are, they might not be wrong, but do they fit with Scripture? Scripture gives a huge amount of freedom. It's not as simple as, oh, well, if it doesn't say it word for word in the Bible, we must never do it. (laughs) Scripture never imposes that on us, but there are things in here, values and principles and teachings that we need to look at, and everything that we do as a church, we need to bounce off of this book and say, is this consistent with God's Word? Is this in keeping with God's Word? And dare I even say, even our spirituality. Is it in keeping with God's Word? So let's take a look at this as we move through this this morning. The setting that we're in this morning in Mark chapter 1, there are a number of things that have happened before these verses that we've read. Uh, Jesus has has gone and he's called uh, Peter. At that time, his name was Simon, uh, but but, uh, he's called Peter and some others to follow him. Andrew spoke about that so well last week. You can hear that on the website again. And uh, even before that, we were uh, spending some time looking at the baptism of Jesus. These things have all happened. But now, Jesus is walking north in the Sea of Galilee. Natalia and I were in that part of the world a few years ago. A fascinating place to visit. One thing that struck me was how close many of the biblical sites are to each other. So Jesus was on the side of the Sea of Galilee because that's where Peter and uh, the others would have been fishing when he called them. And then they start walking north because Capernaum, uh, this town that we're reading about this morning, is on the very far north end of this lake. So Jesus goes and he walks into Capernaum. These others are following him because he's just invited them to follow him. And they drop their their fishing nets and say, yes, we're going to follow you. And he walks straight into essentially then a modern church, a synagogue. In they go into the synagogue. And what would tend to happen in that synagogue is that traveling rabbis, traveling spiritual teachers, Jewish teachers, would come in and they would essentially give a sermon. They would start by kind of doing what we've done this morning, opening up the older text of the Bible, some, maybe some of the writings of the prophets or something out of the Psalms or whatever they, were chosen to, uh, whatever they would have chosen to do on that particular day. They would have read it, but then the, the rabbi would have sat and would have taught. And people would have come for that. It's funny, in in 2,000 or so years, in some ways, not a huge amount has changed. And I would say that is a good thing. The role of preaching is is, is a good thing that churches should have. It's not all about, you know, a show and just exciting music and all of that. It's about getting into the Word of God and letting things flow from this, letting this come first. So even all those years ago, it wasn't the Bible as we have it today, but they were still looking into the Scriptures as they had them at that time. So Jesus goes in and He starts teaching. And people are hearing Him teach, and they're going, what is this? This is incredible. We have never heard anybody teach like this. We've had rabbis come in that we've, you know, we've sat and we've listened to, and every once in a while we get the phone out and go on Facebook because it's a little bit boring. But this guy, this guy, when he teaches, there is something different about this guy. It's kind of like the Toronto Maple Leafs before they had Austin Matthews. You know, they've got this hotshot kid who's come in. Everybody in Toronto's going, we used to have some hockey players, but now we have a real hockey player. They're looking at this guy and they're going, we had some rabbis come through, but this guy with his teaching, the authority, The way that he's teaching, the way that he knows these scriptures, there is something different about this man. And they're marveling at him. But then something dramatic happens. There's a man there that has an unclean spirit, a demon in him. And this demon calls out to Jesus. And he starts speaking. And Jesus speaks with authority and tells this demon to come out of the man. And the demon does. Wow, okay. 
If you're a guest here this morning, have I come to a church this morning that believes that demons exist? Let me be the bearer of bad news. Yes. Yes, you have. Because Jesus believed that demons existed. And we're going to unpack that a lot. But I do want to make it clear. We're te- we're, remember what I said? We're testing our spirituality this morning. Some of you may be in your head going, okay, I'm, I'm, this is where I check out. When, when's the guy going to serve the coffee after? Those muffins are looking pretty good right now. Stay with me, okay? Stay with me because this is good for us. What this book has to say is good for us, even if it doesn't fit kind of our, our, our cultural perceptions and our cultural experiences of it. The first thing that I want us to see uh, in this, when Jesus cast uh, this demon out of this man, is that Jesus' words carry power. His words carry power. Jesus speaks to the demon in this man, and he says this, he says, Be silent and come out of him. The Greek word that is actually used there is actually one word. It's femu. I've looked this up, femu. And the word actually makes reference to being muzzled. Almost like a dog. I don't know if you've ever walked by, you know, somewhere in town and, and maybe somebody in their backyard, they've got a fence up about this high and there's like a Rottweiler or a Doberman and it's, it is barking like crazy and it's got a big kind of collar on and, and, and imagine the owner kind of coming out and muzzling it. Okay, showing authority over that animal. Jesus is essentially doing the same thing with this demon. His, his comment is be muzzled, be silent. It's, it's an action word. It's, a, it's an action word, and it, it demanded a response. It demanded submission on the part of this evil spirit. Be silent and come out of him. And then verse 26, and then the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. It had to submit to Jesus. It had to do it. Jesus' words carry power. His words are not a polite, optional request from just a traveling rabbi. His words come with power and authority, and they are a command from a king. And we must understand them as a command from a king. A gracious king, yes. A merciful king, yes. But a king still who has full authority, including authority over demons. I'm a huge West Wing fan. There's this great see, uh, scene, I forget which season of the West Wing it is, but where this, this, uh, this, this woman who works on behalf of like a lobby group comes in to see President Bartlett. And uh, she comes in and she sits down around this table and she's got a few of her kind of advisors with her and she starts lecturing to President Bartlett, essentially. You need to do this and you need to do that and you've forgotten this and you've forgotten that. And she's really going on, really tearing a strip out of the president, you know, in this, in this beautiful meeting room in the White House. And then President Bartlett, when, he, when it's his uh, time to speak, this is what he has to say. He, he goes and he answers all of the questions and then he, he ends it with this. He says, think about those questions, would you? One last thing. While you may be mis- mistaking this for the monthly meeting of the ignorant tight butt club, in this building, when the president stands, nobody sits. Has anybody seen that scene? It's a great scene. And then she very awkwardly, because the president is standing, she very awkwardly stands up. I edited the quote for you because this is a family show. I hope that you all noticed that this morning, all right? When the president stands, nobody sits. She had no choice but to respond and to stand because of the authority that was in the room. When Jesus speaks to this demon, the demon has no choice but to be submitted. It has no choice but to obey. Jesus speaks and tells it to go, and it goes. 
Jesus' words carry power. Now, again, you might be thinking, all right, preacher man, those are some pretty interesting thoughts about demons. Um, Not sure how I'm really feeling about this. But again, I, I do want to push this on that a little bit right now. In our city, we're very happy, again, to talk about spirituality, and we're very happy to talk about a version of spirituality that fits us and suits our purposes. Now, what I'm about to say, I'm not saying this to, 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 um, to critique in, a, in an unhelpful or a harsh way, but, for example, when somebody passes away, when, when one of your friends uh, you know, in their family suffers the loss of a loved one, tragic situation, it's horrible. Absolutely horrible. But often in a very spiritual city like Ottawa, we will say things like sending prayers your way or positive thoughts or happy thoughts or anything like that. And a large part of the reason why is because we find some sort of comfort in it. We want to feel as though there's something that we're contributing you know, to that tragic situation. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But in those moments, what we are actually doing is we're actually picking and choosing. Because we're very happy to say, you know, positive thoughts, positive energy, positive prayers, sending all of this. And there are, of course, there are other examples that could be given. But if we are confronted with the reality of if there are good prayers and good thoughts and angels and positive forces and that sort of thing, well, what about the other side? What about the other side that Scripture is very honest about? About angels that have fallen that had been cast out of heaven, that decided that they knew best and they wanted to go their own way and followed Satan. No, 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 no. Leave me with the angels. Leave me with, you know, the nice, comfortable prayers. Leave me with the clouds and the harps. I'm cool with all of that. But let's not, preacher man, let's not get into any talking about about demons because that's just a little bit weird. What I want to push on is, is that logical? Is it really illogical? That if angels exist, that if positive thoughts and positive energy and all of that exists, is it really logical that, well, demons surely do not exist? Negative thoughts, negative energy, negative forces and these sort of... No, 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 that doesn't... You know what, that's actually illogical. It's one of these things where you can't have one, really, without the other. The Bible talks about that. There are both. Both do exist. I was listening to the radio yesterday... And there's a new song by uh, the Imagine Dragons. It's got like loads of, uh, loads of artists in it. And one of the artists that's in this song, who's got this incredible line, uh, the artist is Little Wayne. I know some of you are thinking, I knew Rich was a Little Wayne fan. Uh, here I am confirming it now. But Lil Wayne has this line in the song. He says this. He says, I'm devoted to destruction, a full dosage of detrimental dysfunction. I'm dying slow, but the devil's trying to rush me. See, I'm a fool for pain. I'm a dummy. Lil Wayne's onto something here. This part of his theology, believe it or not, is actually quite sound. There is an enemy. As humans, in these bodies, we are dying slowly. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but look, we all know it. We all know it. We are dying slowly. And yes, the devil, Satan, is trying to rush us to that end. Because if he can get us to that end, if he can get the non-Christian to that end before they've heard the gospel or before they know the gospel, the enemy is saying, okay, I've done it. I've kept them from Christ. Now that can open up a whole host of other questions around the sovereignty of God and election and loads of other things that I can't do this morning. I'd happily chat over coffee if some of that stuff is running through you. I can't do it this morning. But my point is this. There is an enemy whose aim is to seek and to destroy and to kill And he is real. 
And there are demons that are working for him that are trying to do that as well. And we see it clearly in this text. This demon is trying to take this guy out. He's trying to ruin him. He is trying to end him. Without a doubt, Jesus believed that Satan and demons do exist. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know, the angels and the positive prayers and positive energy and all that stuff, I'm cool with all that, but I'm not cool about this other side that I'm hearing, then this enemy has you where he wants you to be because it means that you are dismissing this book. It means that you're picking and choosing in this book, in God's Word. And and the enemy delights in that. It's his oldest trick in the book. In the Garden of Eden, Genesis, in the very early chapters of the Bible, we see that that Satan comes in and the thing that he attacks is God's Word. Did God really say? Did God really? Do you think you can really trust Him? Do you think He's really faithful? Do you think He's really for you? It's an attack on God's Word. It's His oldest ploy. He's been doing it for thousands of thousands of years. And if we get into this part of the Bible and Mark or other parts to talk about things that just don't sit that comfortably with us and we go, no, no, that just, it, it, I can't put that through my filter so I'm going to dismiss it, then what we are doing is we are actually saying a similar thing of I'm not going to take God at His word. And we place ourselves in a very dangerous position. Friends, there's good news coming. Stay with me, all right? Heavy this morning, isn't it? My goodness, heavy, heavy stuff. But this is important stuff for us to be talking about. Without a doubt, Jesus believed that Satan and demons do exist. But this story tells us that Satan, although he may be the ruler of this world, and Andrew was talking about that last week, he does not hold any authority over Jesus. Satan does not hold any authority over Jesus. I want to draw us to two texts from Luke. Luke chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. It says this. It says, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Then in the next chapter, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72 of his followers to preach in towns and villages. And listen to what they say when they get back. This is what they have to say. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. See, I want us to see the connection here between Satan's schemes and the preaching and proclamation of the Word of God. Satan hates it when the Word of God is proclaimed. And I'll even say that he hates what I'm doing this morning. That I'm standing in front of you saying that he is real, that his forces are real, and that we need to take this book seriously. Satan hates that. And throughout all of history, he has tried to get in and to try to meddle so that people don't receive these truths. Where the preaching of the Word of God is, Satan has got his eyes on any, any, it's a target for him. Now we have one of two decisions to make there. We can either go, okay, I'm really, really afraid. That's not cool. That's not cool that, 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 that in a setting like this, here we are in common. I don't know if any of you guys have been here through the week, but you know, in the evenings, this is not a church. Let's just be honest about it. It's certainly not a church on Friday and Saturday nights. We love this place. We love that we're able to use it here. But there's lots of stuff that goes on here that's not stuff that we would say would be honoring in this book. I'm not afraid to recognize that. So now here we are. We're in this space. Is the enemy looking at this this morning? And is he really thrilled about that? No, he is not. He is not thrilled about that. So what can I do as a church leader? And what can you do as people in this church that, well, you could get really afraid and I could get really afraid. There's a target on my back. Or, and this is what I hope that we do, 
is we take the most repeated command in Scripture, which is fear not, and we continue forward without fear because Jesus has authority over these things and he has given us as Christians authority over them as well. So it means that we can come into this place or any other place, any, anywhere where you're feeling opposition or attack or anything like that, and you do not need to be afraid. Friend, you do not need to fear these things. Yes, believe they are real, but do not be afraid of them. Satan and his demons hate it when God's word is proclaimed, and they hate it because God's word brings life and appoints people to Jesus. But the call on Christians is not to go out demon hunting. The call on Christians is to go and to proclaim the gospel. Matthew chapter 28. That is what the call is on us. That is what the call is on us as a church to go and to help people follow Jesus. So we can do it not being afraid, not being fearful. Look, the house that Natalia and I are renting, our landlord is a man who worships a very different God. We bought a crib for our daughter from a family that worshiped a very different God. And there's a bit of a conversation in our house. Is this something that we need to be concerned with? But I just feel in my spirit, I just feel in my heart, no, we don't, because the earth is the Lord's. And Jesus has given us authority over these things. And the wood that makes up the crib that my daughter sleeps in, that was made by God. And this place, I love this place. I don't care that I preach in front of 200 liquor bottles. I know what people do when they down this stuff. I've got another part of my life that that we'll talk about another time, probably. Uh, In the past, from another time, probably. (laughs) Woo! (laughs) Added that one. But the earth is the Lord's. This space is God's. Common Eatery belongs to God. Elgin Street belongs to God. Ottawa belongs to God. We do not have to be fearful as we move forward in this city. We don't. And we don't have to get, in a weird way, obsessed about demons and demonology and that sort of thing because that is not God's call on us. Oh, sometimes I go into my Kindle and I click on the store button and I should never do that because I go to the Christian section sometimes and the amount of books that are about how to go and be a demon hunter, go be a ghostbuster for Jesus. There are so many books out there that talk about these things and for every five books about demonology, there's maybe one book that centers on the gospel. There's maybe one book that centers on the person of Jesus Christ. And friends, there are Christians that are out there that get much more fascinated by demons and demonology than they are fascinated by the good news of Jesus. Friends, let us be a church that marvels and is fascinated by the gospel. Not a church that becomes fascinated by the spiritual realm in an unhelpful way. Yes, let's be aware of it. Okay, let's not go from one extreme to another. Let's be aware of it, but let's not be fearful. Let's move forward proclaiming this gospel Uh, that God has given to us that points people to his son, Jesus Christ. You might be happy to know that I'm pretty much at the end of the demon section of this talk. Now, in all this talk about demons, there's something that we might miss. And that is this, that in Mark's Gospels we're reading, there was a man who had a demon inside of him. It was ruining his life. It was destroying him. It was killing him. It had taken over his body. It was bad. Until what? Until an encounter with Christ. Despair turns to hope. Possession turns to liberation. The Son of God of heaven showed mercy to a man living in constant hell. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Jesus holds authority 
over Satan and demons. We then read that Jesus goes and he goes into Peter's house. I don't know if you're here and you're married. I don't know what your relationship with your mother-in-law is like if she was sick on a bed. I hope that you would, if Jesus was nearby, say, please go and heal her. Maybe some of you wouldn't. It's a different conversation about mothers-in-law. But I would, for the record, with my mother-in-law, I would do that. I love my mother-in-law. Anyway, Jesus goes into this house. Peter's mother-in-law, I don't know where that aside came from. Just forget all of that, really. Peter goes, or Jesus goes into this house. Peter's mother-in-law is there. She's got a fever. She's sick. And they tell Jesus about this. And Jesus goes over to this bed. And now this is a fascinating thing that has happened. Imagine being Peter because you've just accepted this invitation to follow Jesus. And you followed him. You've laid down these fishing nets and you're walking behind Jesus, this traveling rabbi, and you go into the synagogue. You hear him teach. You see him cast out a demon. And then Jesus walks into your house. I don't know about you, but I'd be nervous. I'd be like, what's he going to see here? What's it? He's this guy. There's no one like him. This guy has has power. He has authority. He has wisdom. What's he going to see in my house? What's he going to see about my life that he doesn't like? Peter's there, and Jesus is now. It's not just in the synagogue. It's not just on the side side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is in his house. That is uncomfortable. And you might be here this morning thinking, look, a lot of the stuff about Jesus, I'm really cool with. But if I really let him in. If I let him into my house, if I let him into the the place where I exist, into my life, what about my comforts? What's he going to see that he doesn't like, that he's going to want to throw out? What's he going to do? Is he going to see something in me or in my house? Is 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 there going to be a demon he's going to want to cast out? Is is he going to want to come in and sit down and teach and teach and teach and just kind of lecture to me? What's he going to do? Well, we should be hugely encouraged by what we read about what Jesus does. Mark chapter 1. Verse 31 says this. Mark 1, 31 says, And he came and took her, this is Peter's mother-in-law, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Oh, friends, this verse is a summary of human history. It's a summary of human history. We are sick. In ourselves, we are sick. We are far worse than lying on a bed with a bad fever. Sin inside of us ravages us. It separates us from God. In our own ways, we have declared that we know better. That we can be God. And it creates this void between us and God. But... In His grace and in His mercy, God sends His Son, Jesus Christ, who comes in, He comes into our house, He comes into our world, and He doesn't come in just to lecture, He doesn't come in just to say, change this, change that, change this, change that. He comes in and He reaches His hand out, and He lifts her up, and He lifts you up, and He lifts me up, and He brings healing. Are there things in Peter's life, are there things that Jesus could have come into the house and said, Peter, there are some things that we need to change. There are some things in your character that we need to change. Yes, absolutely. And you know what? We're going to cover a lot of them as we keep going through Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is really Peter's story. Mark is recording it on Peter's behalf. Peter's very honest about his shortcomings. Are there things that Jesus could have pointed out and said, don't don't know about that. Don't like this. I don't like that. Absolutely there was. But what does he do first when he comes into Peter's house? The Son of God. The Son of God. Who had people marveling at him at the way that he taught. Who had people looking in awe when he cast out a demon. Comes into Peter's house and he serves. He stretches out his hand and he lifts Peter's mother-in-law and he heals her. 
And as I close, I want to say this. This is a pointer ahead to when Jesus Christ not just stretched out one hand to bring healing, but stretched out both of his arms on the cross in your place and in mine to bring healing to the world, to all those that put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus. This is our God. There is no one like him. In Peter's house, Jesus stretches out his hand and raises Peter's mother-in-law to full health and to full strength, and she then begins to serve. Out of gratitude, she's thinking, how could I not serve? She begins to serve. And on the cross, the Son of God serves us by stretching out his arms, bringing healing to us and to all those that put their faith in Jesus.